Welcome to the real, raw conclusion of our epic two-part event, where the very fabric of the totally biased media universe will be shaken to its core. We're discussing the absolute best of gaming history, and we're not afraid to get personal. Jordan, I think your favorite game of all time sucks. Everything you know about TBM is about to stay the day. <laughs> Alright, let me just... Just redo the last sentence. Yeah. Everything you know about TBM is about to stay the same. You know, maybe it's just me. But I really love video games. They're all right. I feel like video games are just cool and good and other positive things. This is getting a little weird for me. I don't feel that way about video games at all. Jackson? <laughs> I, view, I view them more as a shackle. <laughs> Video games are the binding that's holding society back from its true calling. And that's putting puzzles together. Really, first and foremost, video games, like, as a concept, as an art form, were really just made as a weapon against the jigsaw puzzle industry. <laughs> and just by being here, we're actively contributing to that hostile takeover. Hello, welcome to the Totally Biased Media Podcast. <laughs> A podcast where three brothers are are puppets of the state. <laughs> this one went off the rails really quick. Uh, we're back with our second part of our favorite video games of all time discussion. We're going to talk about a whole lot of games this episode, so buckle in. Buckle in? Yeah, buckle in. Or uh, fasten your seatbelts, or... Um, hold on to your hats. <laughs> Pull or... the lap bar into the full uh, downright position. Before we get into our official favorite games or most important games or whatever you want to call it of all time, we're going to talk about some of our honorable mentions. These are just a few of the games that we really, really love that just didn't quite make the cut for a list of our top three favorites that we've gotten into so far. So Jackson... We're going to kick this off with you. Give us some of your honorable mentions. First up, got to mention Spider-Man 2018, uh, which almost was the main game I was going to talk about this week, but I got I got something else to talk about. Um, a little indie gem that I'll talk about later. But a lot of my love for Spider-Man 2018 honestly just comes from it being Spider-Man, but besides that, it's also just one of the best superhero games there is a lot of you know cool stuff in it uh, a lot of that cool stuff being spider-man <laughs> um another one that didn't quite make the cut minecraft which i don't feel like a, a big reason this one didn't make the cut was just i don't don't really know what all to say about it that hasn't been said like there's just there's a lot to it one of the longest running or longest standing uh sort of like survival slash crafting games that there is it's um, got the blocks yeah <laughs> it, it kind of like ignited that survival crafting genre 
Yeah, there's been a lot of big ones since then, like uh, Don't Starve, Ark, and yeah, Ark, Don't Starve, um, Rust, uh, Raft. A few other big ones that uh, I can't think of. Yeah, Raft. let me look at the top ten games on Steam real quick. Subnautica. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I also have Last of Us, which was a big, a big, big contender for me. That one also got pretty close to being number one. While it does great with its story and is probably one of the best stories of any game I played, its gameplay does fall flat a good bit at times and I think can get pretty boring by the end, honestly. But it's got a pretty good story to hold you through that. Uh, up next, though, got Mass Effect Legendary Edition. Uh, one that came in late for me, you know, didn't play it till almost... 10 years after the final game of the trilogy, but it is easily either my second favorite or favorite world in any game. There's so much to it, and unlike anything I've seen in any other game, and it just it, it just really stands above the rest. Um, each game in the series feels completely different from each other, at least tonally, because Mass Effect 1, like, there's this big mystery of, like, what is going on with the universe? Like, what is this big threat that's coming? And Mass Effect 2, it's like, okay, we know what's coming, but now we got to do a suicide mission to stop it. And it's just all about, you know, building up the perfect team to survive. And 2 is more hopefully... like, we know what's coming, but no one believes us. Yeah. <laughs> because we're working with racists. <laughs> um, And then 3 is that threat like that threat has come the people that didn't listen to you are now dead because they didn't listen to you and each one like manages to feel very different from each other while also having like that core cast of characters that is just built upon throughout each game that's pretty good next though from the halo i guess not a saga halo series halo reach which is probably probably the one of the ones i hear the least about from like most halo fans but i feel like it's the one that probably has the deepest like cult following of any of them like i feel like halo fans don't talk about halo reach too much it's usually halo 2 and 3 but then there's the reach fans that treat it like the holy grail of gaming <laughs> um but it was you know it's it's bungie's last entry into the halo series before they transitioned to being independent so it was, it was like their big final outing and they were like, what if we didn't even touch like the main cast of characters, you know, and then they introduce us to a whole bunch of characters. They tell us this story where everyone dies in the end and it's great. I did. I didn't play reach until Jackson and I replayed like the entire series a couple of years ago. And it's definitely like the. I, like it, it occupies a totally different space in my brain than the rest of the series does because I think what it does well, it does better than any other Halo game. And I think that part of that was telling a story I could get much more invested in than Master Chief's story because I think that there is a much bigger display of you know, a range of characters and a range of motivations and it shows a much more holistic look at what life is like for the Spartans and I just I really really loved Reach I think it it hits all the right notes it does not overstay its welcome like some of the other Halo games do 
I mean, every level feels unique and special. I, I just think it does so much so right. I think one major thing that it does is that it tells a story in one game. Halo, you know, Halo 1 through 3 is one story. Halo 4 through Infinite is a story that's still running. But Halo Reach, and I guess sort of ODST too, also Bungie's uh, second to final game in the Halo series, they tell singular stories that are just contained in those games. I would disagree with that. I would say like one of the big strengths of Reach and ODST is providing context to the world. And part of that is just by focusing on characters that can have fun. I guess what I'm trying to say is anytime Master Chief has fun, I'm like, this man is a psychopath. Yeah. <laughs> Something is horribly wrong with this man. I'm, I'm pretty burnt out on Master Chief being like our only central voice in the mainline Halo games when he is so painfully uninteresting or just a complete psycho and there's no middle ground. <laughs> he's either completely yeah, but... silent or he's saying, I really enjoy killing. But next up, my final honorable mention, Horizon Zero Dawn. It's got big robot dinosaurs. And you fight them with a spear. <laughs> and you fight them with a spear and a bow. Um, Horizon Zero Dawn, I've talked about before on the podcast. I never actually beat it until last year. I, I think I started the game like sometime the year it came out. And I tried to play through it multiple times. Like, I had three different save files by the time I actually beat it. But it is still probably one of the best open world games I've even played, even with its faults. Because there's just there's not a lot to do in it. But the stuff that there is to do is so cool and fun that it makes up for it. Like, most of the things around the map are just robot zones to go, you know... Fight some more robots, get some more equipment and stuff. But the combat in this game is some of the best combat in any open world game. So it just, it makes up for the lack of stuff to do so well. Yeah, in like a lot of Ubisoft open world games, there are, you know, the map is littered with like, you know, camps to take over and items to collect and upgrades to find. And that is also present here, except that a lot of those things littering the map are, uh, here you fight robot raptors, and here you fight robot pterodactyls, and here you fight a giant ro robot saber-toothed tiger. And yeah, there might be some repetitiveness to it, but also you're fighting giant robot dinosaurs. Yeah. So, so it's okay that there's some repetitiveness because it's fun enough every and far, time. And the farther you go, the bigger robot dinosaurs there are. <laughs> yeah. But that is the end of my honorable mentions. So Jason, how about you tell us about yours? My list is a little different than Jackson's. <laughs> and I'm going to start off with Civ Five from Firaxis. Civ Five is one of the best like strategy games that I've just ever played because it has so many options for what you can do and how you can build up your civilization. There's so many different ways that you can win the game. And I don't care about any of that because it has really good <laughs> online multiplayer. And I just enjoy trying to compete with my friends in a giant turn-based board game. And I think Civ Five 
really nails being in the perfect sweet spot of accessible, but still like having complexity if you're interested in finding it. You know? I don't know how much you guys have gotten to play Civ Five. I've never played a Civilization game in any capacity. <laughs> I've played a few hours of it, like, five years ago. Honestly, you should pick it up on Steam, and we should get a game going at some point, because it is it is such a fun game to play with friends. I think what I really like about Civ Five is just all of the really good memories I have playing it with my friends, you know, throughout high school. And there's a Civ Six now, and uh, we played that, and it's not as good as Civ Five. Maybe it is now with all the DLC, but Civ Five, like I said, it just hits that sweet spot. It's so fun. Great game. Next game on my list, Knights of the Old Republic 2. It's one of like the first Obsidian RPGs. I mean, like I guess I mean earliest Obsidian RPGs that I played. I didn't actually end up playing this until just a couple of years ago. It was a game that I was always really interested in. I, re- <laughs> I remember playing the demo for Knights of the Old Republic at like a GameStop or a Walmart. <laughs> and I was always like, oh, this game seems really cool. And I didn't actually end up playing either of them until sometime in college, 20, 2018. Like it was a few years ago. And these games just suck you in. They're such good RPGs and they, they just handle like the Star Wars license perfectly. It's a game that knows like, okay, the thing that everyone really wants is to be a Jedi. <laughs> and it may be a turn-based RPG, or not turn-based, it's one of those like weird uh, hybrid systems where like time pauses when it's your turn, but you have like a bar that has to go up before you can go again. It's just so good. It's so fun. And all of the characters in it are fun to be around. Like, it's a good space romp. I like Knights of the Old Republic 2 for just about all of the reasons that I really like Mass Effect and the whole trilogy. Next up, Persona 5 Royal. Yeah, if you, I knew you were going to talk about this one, otherwise I was going to. Yeah, Persona 5 is a very anime game. And I think for a really long time, that kind of kept me away from it. <laughs> because the people I knew that were really into Persona 5 were not necessarily people that I wanted to hang out with. But (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I feel that when Royal came out, I, it kind of piqued my curiosity and I ended up like pre-ordering it and picking it up like as soon as I could. Um, Pre-ordering is bad, by the way, you shouldn't do it, but (laughs) yeah, this is Jason from three years ago and he makes different decisions, (laughs) but I, I ended up playing it eventually i think i picked it up like the day it came out and didn't play it for several months until around the same time that jordan did and first off having played a little bit of persona 5 it fixes all of the major issues that i had with it first off like guns are kind of useless in persona 5 early on at least and persona 5 royal completely fixes that i guess something i'm realizing is like the thing that i really enjoy in games is just fun and interesting characters. And Persona 5... It's loaded with them. <laughs> every character in the game at least has something interesting going on, something that makes you want to find out more about them. Every playable character, every confidant, every major villain, every single one of them is interesting. Yeah, and you're incentivized in some way to do it, too. Like, it's like a, dull, it's like a feedback loop, because... 
you want to go learn more about the character because they're really interesting because you like the character because you want to see like how their story goes and then on top of that when you do help the character or you go learn more about the character they're better in combat (laughs) and then you want to spend more time with them in the dungeons in the game and persona 5 really it nails the sweet spot between like a life sim game and a turn-based strategy game or not turn-based strategy uh, turn-based rpg like the combat in persona 5 is i mean at the end of the day it's pretty simple it's just it's like pokemon but it gives you even more information than pokemon gives you of like all of the type matchups i think there are fewer types than pokemon has too <laughs> it also gives you a gun to shoot the pokemon i think part of persona 5 is kind of hard to talk about because the things that I like about it are so wildly different from each other. I'm yeah. like, oh, I'm really interested in the characters. And also, I like the combat. I think it's it's just simple enough, or <laughs> it's just complex enough to keep things interesting. Yes. No one part of the game is that complicated. But you're juggling like five different parts of the game. <laughs> and they all fit together so smoothly. But together, they are significantly more than the sum of their parts. This is an anime game with a ton of fan service that's like a slice of life type story, which are three things that I generally despise, but this game is still one of like my top 10 favorite games of all time. So like that's a real testament to how good it is. That it can be like at its core three things I strongly dislike and still really love it. Oh, and obviously the music is incredible. Oh yeah, the music is probably the best part. I mean, they went and invented an entirely new genre just for this game. <laughs> Thank you uh, for per, uh, Persona for inventing jazz. Persona Five is awesome. I uh, it's Persona Five is so good. I literally can't imagine a sequel being better. And that's like the highest praise I can give a game. Speaking of things that don't seem like they should work, but somehow do, Jack (laughs) 2. Jack 2 is the sequel to Jack and Daxter, The Precursor Legacy, which is pretty standard in terms of, like, early 2000s platformers. (laughs) Go collect all the things across all the maps. It's got, like, an interesting world, I would say, but at the end of the day, like, it doesn't do anything crazy, and it is, like, a kid's game at I would say. Jack 2... Is not. (laughs) Jack 2 starts with the silent protagonist from Jack and Daxter uh, saying a curse word. Specifically, being tortured into saying a curse word. Yeah. Because it was 2003, and they had to get those Grand Theft Auto dollars. And I completely understand it. And, And if you look at any other game that tried this, if you just take, like, a kid's uh, platformer and you make it edgy, but something about Jack 2 works. And I would say, in a lot of ways, it works better than the original Jack and Daxter, which I'll go back to Jack and Daxter every so often because, like, it is a really fun game. But Jack and Daxter to Jack 2 is just such a crazy jump in, like, aesthetics because it's it goes from like all this like outdoor natural environments to being entirely in this like dingy war-torn city 
Yeah, it's like, I mean, it's like Grand Theft Auto is a good way to look at it. It's as if the first game is Mario 64 and the second game is Grand Theft Auto San Andreas. Like, like it's wild the jump this makes. I don't know who looked at this colorful, vibrant, uppity, like, you know, character or duo in Jack and Daxter and thought, we need to send them a thousand years into the future into the midst of, like, a tyrannical police state. <laughs> like... Like, I don't know who made any of these decisions, but they work almost every time. They took the core gameplay from just a standard platformer, and then they added guns, and it worked somehow. Because Jack moves and controls the exact same way between both games, but now he has a gun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He has four guns, specifically. It's just, it's such a good game. The city is fun to explore. It has a lot of character, I would say. I said that Persona 5 was hard to talk about a moment ago, but I think Jack 2 might be even more difficult. Because everything I like about Jack 2 is something I would have complained about in any other game. Alright, to bring me to the end of my honorable mentions, I gotta talk about Batman Arkham Asylum. Batman Arkham Asylum is, honestly, I would probably say the perfect comic book game. (laughs) It takes... Everything that's really interesting about Batman, about his rogues gallery, and just, like, the mythos of Batman, and it just crams it into one perfectly laid out game. (laughs) Batman Arkham Knight is one of the games that I can't think of a single way that you'd really be able to improve it, at least story-wise. I think when they were making the sequels... Uh, Batman Arkham City and Batman Arkham Knight. I think there was a really big focus on providing an interesting, like, huge open world you can freely explore to your heart's content. But Arkham Asylum focuses on solely Arkham Island and the Arkham the Arkham Asylum itself. <laughs> and by being in, like, this really closed environment with all of Batman's, like, most terrifying villains, you really gotta... You get up close and personal with each and every one of them. You can just tell that the people at Rocksteady really love Batman. And I'm pretty excited to see what they do with their Suicide Squad game that's supposed to come out one day. Anyways, I think that's about it for my honorable mentions. Let's move on to Jordan. Wait, what is the best games of all time that aren't the best games of all time? I think the first one I want to talk about is one of the most recent games that really hit with me. And that is Hades. So technically, I first played it in 2018. I think I actually played it like the first week it was out in early access because I I think Epic had like a sale where if you bought a game over $15, you got $15 off and it was like $18. So I got it for nothing like the day it dropped or the week it dropped or something like that. And I pretty much saw right away, it's like, oh, this is a roguelike. And that was not a genre I was super familiar with yet. I played the game for about two hours, and then it was—it really dawned on me. It's like, I think I like roguelikes. <laughs> because Hades is one of just the outright most fun games I've ever played. It feels great. It looks great. It sounds great. Everything about it is just so cool. And it does everything in a totally unique style. So it's this third-person, isometric, hack-and-slash game, which is Super Giant's bread and butter at this point. But 
what really se- separates this game from the others is that this is a roguelike. So it's run-based. You start over from scratch every time. But it has so many systems that interlock with it that you can engage with as much or as little as you want. It has this cast of incredibly cool characters, all from Greek mythology, that you can get to know and form relationships with. And they give you cool powers to go, you know, with that improve as you get to know them. And it offers so much variety in how you play. I mean, you have six weapons, and each one has five different variations. And each, you know, you can partner up with like a combination of eight different gods that give you different powers. Plus, you can bring in items that your friends give you. And then you can, if you get close, like really close with certain people, you can summon them in to fight for you at different points. And all this creates thousands upon thousands of different combinations of weapons and powers and allies that you can have. So every run feels so unique. And I think it's just. I think everything Haiti sets out to do, it does basically as well as I could even fathom. The only thing that I could ask for for this game is just more. <laughs> like, I just want more of Hades because everything it does is so custom-tailored to what I want in a video game, and it's it's exceptional. Yeah, as someone that doesn't usually like roguelikes, I did really enjoy what I've played of Hades. I think it's definitely unique both like aesthetically and all of the different systems that you kind of went into just now and i think that those systems kept me interested longer than something like binding of isaac which i mean like i've done a few runs on that game but uh, i just get tired of it but hades is the one roguelike that i've played that i honestly enjoyed what i played the second game I want to talk about is one that I bounced off of many times, or I won't say many times because I don't think, I I think I only gave it like an honest shot once and I bounced off where I just dipped my toe back in a couple more times. But this was the the first from software game that I really fell in love with. And that is Sekiro. I think that Sekiro has my favorite combat system in any video game ever. Every single fight, whether you're fighting the simplest guards all the way up to the most extravagant over-the-top bosses, every single fight feels good. And every single successful hit is satisfying. And I think it's also in one of the prettiest and most rewarding packages I have seen in a video game. So it's just, this is a game that I beat for the first time just like two years ago which I guess was only a year after it came out, but I have played in its entirety three more times since then, and I can't think of any other game that I have gone back to that close to when I finished it. It's also really cool because my first experience with Sekiro was a lot of hitting my head against the wall until I beat certain bosses, and it took me, I, don't, I couldn't even guess, probably 30 to 40 hours to beat it the first time, whereas this most recent time I played it, I beat it in like seven because I have just learned how the bosses work and where items are and how to progress through certain things. Like it's it's a game that once you get it down, you can do such cool things in. And I really, really love that in a game where it rewards mastery of skills more than it just lets you do cool stuff right off the bat. Neither of you have even really like played much of this one, have you? No, I, I haven't played Sekiro at all. 
I've played the thir- the first 30 minutes like two or three times. <laughs> yeah, it I mean, the game smacks you down the second you get started. Like even beyond just the first, you know, time where you're expected to die. I mean, the first boss or not even I wouldn't even say the first. The first like even named villain you fight will screw you up multiple times most likely. And that's 30 minutes into the game. So, not even counting when you get you know, several hours in and you fight your first like major shinobi and they are just miserable to fight until you learn the game systems and how, you know, that character's patterns and stuff down pat. Lady Butterfly and I have a long and complicated history. <laughs> uh, the next game I want to get into is a pretty long running series. One of the longest running that I've like actually kept with the entire time. And that is the Forza Horizon games. I think that Forza Horizon does what a lot of games tried to do in the early 2000s, but it exceeds on a level that I didn't think was possible until I played the first one. And that is just let you do dumb stuff in cars. (laughs) Like, the Need for Speed series tried to do that and succeeded on some marks, but it also tried to be this, like, edgy grim dark fight the power thing which like is fine in certain genres of games but it didn't blend well with what the technology was now capable of in terms of like photorealism and it didn't adapt with the times 2012 rolls around and we get this electric poppy over the top racing game where you take colorfully painted cars and you send them over ridiculous jumps and you're driving through fields and you're tearing up people's you know like (laughs) just regular old houses in the pursuit of driving fast and it's it's just so much fun it doesn't hold anything back either from the minute you start you're behind the wheel of these ridiculous cars that can go 200 miles per hour and you're tearing through small towns and major cities and everything in between and I, I love the Forza Horizon games. We had some exceptional games last year, and Forza Horizon 5 was still my favorite game of the year, like head and shoulders above the competition. So, I mean, I just I think it's about as good as it gets. I just realized that the Forza Horizon games have the same conceit as Batman Arkham City. <laughs> of They just lock down just a huge section of the... Uh, well, in Arkham City, it's part of Gotham City. In this, it's like entire, an entire like, country. <laughs> yeah, basically. And it's just like, okay, this is where only the racers hang out now. (laughs) Yeah. If you're not a racist, you can get out. (laughs) It's it's so ridiculous from start to finish that that these people would be like willing to let their town just be taken over to let people drive stupid cars through their property and stuff. But it's so much fun. So the last game that I want to talk about is another series and another, you know, fairly long running one. And if you ask me, this is the game series that's most overdue for a sequel. And that is the Sly Cooper series. If you're unfamiliar, which is a possibility because I feel like this one got overshadowed by some other PS2 titans. uh, Sly Cooper is a humanoid raccoon man. Um, that definitely birthed a whole generation of furries. <laughs> that his whole thing is he is from a family of thieves, and he 
only steals from people who, I guess, are thieves themselves or just aren't rightfully in possession of the things that he is stealing. Uh, he's a Robin Hood type. But well, this is everything this is that like, Sly is stealing is to uh, it was stolen from his family. Right, right. So he and, he's the good guy, even though he is still a thief. And all the other thieves yeah. are bad guys because they stole. Don't think about it. <laughs> no context on what they stole or why, though. <laughs> um, but the first game and what ended up being the fourth game and the final game of the series, those are two totally different things. And I think that one of the things that Sly Cooper does best is it shows how a game series can and should evolve without giving up on its roots. And there's one other game we're going to talk about a little bit later that I think is an even better example of this. But I think one of the best things that a sequel can do is expand upon what's great about a game, what people love about a game, but don't necessarily just carbon copy what it was before. Mm -hmm. And I think that... Sly Cooper, which is a really solid platformer with some really cool level designs and a lot of style to it, becoming this sort of open world team-based thing where you're, you know, going out on stakeouts and you're having to scour cities for information and find items that are relevant to your, your stakeout of sorts. And, like, it evolving into that... And then evolving from two to three into this game where you're building the ultimate team of thieves. And you're going to pull off like the one job that's going to write everything. And then that evolving into a game that's stylistic. Yeah, time travel. A game that is stylistically the same, but expands so much on Sly's history and the relationship that he has with this, this, you know, special book called The Thievius Raccoonus where he learned how to be a thief. Expanding on, you know, the character and his background in the world. Like, that whole evolution across all four games is so cool. Each one of them is so good in its own right. And then each one has a sequel that follows that expands upon the good, cuts away the bad, and just lets it keep growing. But that finishes it up for our honorable mentions. So now it is officially time for us to get into... Our favorite game of all time. So, Jackson, what game are you talking about? I am talking about God of War, which is an interesting pick for me because when I originally played it, I obviously thought the same thing as everyone else like, this game is amazing, one of the best games of the year. But after I played it, didn't really think about it again for a while. Until I replayed it about beginning of fall last year. And playing it again again was a very interesting experience. Because usually when I replay a game, it's usually like five years or so after I first played it. Usually a good bit of time between it. And I still can remember like, most of the things that happen in the game, a lot of how the game feels, and it just it feels very familiar to me. Playing God of War for a second time, only two years after I'd first played it, it still felt so new to me. Like, 
it felt like I was playing a new game again. Yes. And I am in the middle of a playthrough right now, and that has been exactly my experience. Yeah. It's like, I thought I remembered what this game was, and it's even better than I remembered it. Yeah, that it is, it is probably the only game I have ever felt that way of. Because, like, even Breath of the Wild, which I talked about last episode, I, play, I started a playthrough again of that, um about middle of last year and like it's still it felt the same like i i knew what i was doing i knew everything that was happening and it just it felt like i was playing it again but god of war it felt completely new like it it felt like i'd never played the game before <laughs> and no other game has done anything like that it's so weird because it's a linear game. Yeah, that's like that's yeah. not the type of game you normally have those kind of like it doesn't feel like you're playing it for the first time again when you replay yeah. any other linear game. Like when I replayed Last of Us One, it just it, it felt like whenever you watch a TV show for a second time, like you're just you're just doing it to kill time. Like, but God of War does not invoke that feeling at all. It just it feels brand new, and I just. I don't know how they did that. I do not know what specific aspect of the game it is that invokes that. It is probably just a combination of everything in this game because I don't think there is a single aspect of this game that is bad. Like, I think this is probably the closest to a perfect game that I've ever played. Have you played any of the previous God of War games? No. I mean, not no slight if you haven't. Okay. Yeah, I. See, I really, really like God of War 3 as its own thing, but it is a very different thing. And I kind of mentioned it before, but, like, I think that, you know, when I was talking about Slyco, where I talked about, like, how a series can evolve, I think that God of War is the epitome of that. I think what God of War was, which was great in its own regard, I think that there is a lot, a lot of positive things to say about God of War 1 through 3, but I think the jump from God of War 3 to God of War, the 2018 sort of soft reboot situation, I think is... no. I don't think any developer's ever done it better. Like, I don't think any other, any other developer has evolved conceptually with the hardware, with the times, with what, you know, with society's ideals. I don't think any game has ever evolved better than the God of War franchise has. I can't imagine playing God of War 2018 without having played God of War 3. Because God of War 3 is Kratos at his worst, I would say. Like, For sure. For in sure. that game, he, in his mind at least, he's lost everything. The only thing yeah. that he wants to do is get revenge and kill all of the Greek gods. Yep. He doesn't care about anyone or anything that gets in his, in his way. He's going to kill everything he's going to destroy the greek pantheon he literally destroys his own realm in the process and knows he's going to do that and still does it he is so angry it yeah. is the only thing on his mind and he doesn't see himself as a hero he doesn't see himself as writing some wrong he knows he is an angry broken man he just wants revenge and then playing god of war 2018 where kratos is contemplative and reflective and deeply, deeply regretful of his actions in the previous games. I think is just incredible. The thing is, I don't think... 
not playing God of War 3 before 2018 makes it a worse experience. But I think No, it I'm is. not saying that. I, I'm not saying that God of War 3, like not having played God of War 3 makes God of War 2018 worse. Yeah, yeah. It's just a totally different experience. Right, yeah. Elevates God of War 2018. <laughs> well, all right. you see a lot of, you know, posts around any sort of social media where it's like, name one movie or game or song you wish you could experience for the first time again. And I I wish I could experience God of War again, but with playing God of War 3 before, because I think if you've played it first or not, does not matter going into God of War 2018. Because I think I think the game is purposely made so no, that it I, is completely different. I don't think you understand different. what I'm saying. I'm not saying that God of War is like missing something. It's, I'm not saying that God of War 2018 doesn't give enough context to why Kratos is the way it is. Like I think that you can infer just about everything that God of War 2018 throws at you, like about his history, about the things he's done. Right, yeah. I think the game is really well set up for that. But I think there's a big difference between... I think there's a difference between just imagining Kratos killing Zeus uh, and watching Kratos... Eviscerate Zeus. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I was going to say watching Kratos eviscerate his father. And then that really ties into the themes of this game of just like, we've seen what someone with Kratos' power can do to a god. And Kratos is deeply regretful. He's very sad about what he's done. Even though I think on some level, like, he sees it as inevitable, right? Right. But his biggest fear is that cycle continuing and his son doing the same thing as him. See that's that's my point. I think I think the game is purposely made. Obviously, I mean it's made so you don't have to play God of War three first because this is kind of like a soft reboot for the series. But I think it's also made that way to make the experience different, whether you have played God of War three or not. Because mm-hmm. like I knew going into this, even having never played a God of War game, that the whole gist of the previous games was that Kratos was hellbent on killing all the gods in revenge for what they did to him. And I think whether you know the things that happened or actually played the games and experienced the things that happened completely change the way you think about God of War 2018 while you're playing it. And I don't think either one is better than the other in any way. I think it is purposely made to be a different experience. I think it's it's weird to me that people call it a soft reboot because I I would definitely disagree. It's it's a sequel, like it's a it's a sequel that doesn't it's a sequel that makes sure to give you all the information you need. But ultimately, the game is about Kratos. It's about Kratos grappling with the repercussions of his actions in the right. previous yeah. games. Yeah, it still follows the same story and everything that was set up in the previous games where i think it really heavily differs is combat well and tone in general like everything is totally different about this game like like i said i've not played any of the previous god of war games but they're for the most part kind of like hack and slash right basically Yeah. yeah god of war 2018 is very different from that it is easily the best combat in any game i have played 
And again, like a lot of the rest of this game, I don't know how any other game could possibly outdo what this game has done. <laughs> because the combat in this, it is so good. Like, it is so well put together. And like a lot of games, even games that have stellar combat, like Horizon Zero Dawn, has great combat. It still has parts where it falls through. God of War 2018 does not have any parts where the combat falls through. It gets better as you go, and there is never a point where the combat hits a low. At all. I would I would disagree. I think that the fights against standard enemies get really, really... They really drag near the end of the game, especially. But eventually, there's less standard enemies. You're seeing a lot more different enemies as you go. And I think also, with the way that kratos evolves and the axe evolves and atreus evolves throughout the game just makes even the basic fights still fun by the end because it's kind of like even though you really only have one weapon or you know two by the end it still feels like the leviathan axe is multiple weapons because you can build it in a lot of ways there's a huge skill tree that uh you can progress through throughout the game and there are so many different attacks in that and like a lot of weird things like one of the attacks you can get near the end of the skill tree uh changes your stance if you just like if you just press the button for a second it'll do a quick animation and kratos will change his stance and it completely changes your move set for like the next like three or four attacks so you can focus on something like that with certain um I don't remember what the like extra like fragments and stuff you can add on to the axe were called, but you can like it. It basically has build crafting in a linear offline game, which I feel like you don't see a lot of. But because a lot of that, you know, is depending on games having like you know big open worlds and side quests, like like Borderlands, like it's a very build craft heavy game. But stuff like that doesn't work that great when it's linear like this but god of war makes it work you basically have like five different move pools here i mean you have your leviathan axes melee attacks you have its ranged attacks you have your unarmed melee attacks you have all of atreus's skills and then you have another weapon you get later that i won't spoil for anyone that hasn't played the yeah. game um but like they each have their own move pools they have their own combos they you know they can be upgraded in a dozen different ways you can attach different runes to your weapons that give you new moves or replace how different things work and i think that the gear system is a bit convoluted but i think like the skill system in the game is is really smart mm -hmm. and it lets you prioritize what you want to prioritize this time in the game i have been a lot more aggressive i have relied a lot less on ranged attacks and i focus a lot more on just getting in people's faces and trying to do a lot of stagger damage and it's a totally different experience than yeah. how i played the game the first time which was a lot more careful and a lot slower i am playing on a harder difficulty so i'm getting absolutely butchered when i try that the first time sometimes but i am i'm really really loving it and i really, really loved it the first time and it it simultaneously feels familiar enough that i'm reconnecting with what i liked but also like a new enough experience that I'm paying attention to totally different things than I did the first time. When I played it the first time, I mostly focused on just outright damage with the Leviathan Axe. I didn't really focus much on like 
the unarmed combat or uh, freezing abilities. And it was even like not diving too much into what the game had to offer. It was still very fun and felt very unique. The second time I played it, I mostly focused on the uh, the freeze stat, like having that as high as possible. That way, basically, any enemy I faced, I could just freeze. And when an enemy is frozen, they take more damage from any source, but specifically from unarmed combat. So I put a lot into that and had a lot of like extra like trinkets and stuff that increased a lot of stuff to do with arm unarmed combat. So there, like, the whole way I'd play is, you know, I'd throw a Leviathan Axe at an enemy to completely freeze them, and I could then just, you know, go up and beat them in just a few hits, or kick them into a wall, and they'd instantly go down, and it was a completely different experience than the first time I played it. But I don't think it made the first time I played it worse because of how little I dived into the combat. I would say other than Sekiro, this is the best combat I've played in a video game. I think it feels good. There's a ton of variety to it. It's interesting because a lot of people, I wouldn't say a lot, but there is definitely an audience that thought that this game was too big of a departure from what God of War was. Because in God of War 3, you're taking out dozens of enemies with the, you know, the Blades of Chaos are huge and cover a tremendous area and light things on fire and do all sorts of crazy stuff. So you're just like butchering armies in that game. Whereas this game is a lot more intimate. But this game makes every single kill feel a lot more graphic. So I think this one's actually a much more visceral and violent experience than God of War 3 was. Even if there's a much smaller scale to the actual gore. <laughs> yeah, um, I feel like this I one, think like... a lot of it is really just Kratos' personality. Because yeah, it, like part of it with uh, the old God of War games, like when you see that kind of brutal aggression from Kratos, it's more expected because right the whole time, anytime he speaks to anyone, he's like screaming at them about how angry he is. But like yeah. in God of War 2018, Kratos is quiet and calm a lot of the time until he gets into combat, and right. I think that that kind of makes the combat seem even more intense there's this really great scene when you are fighting and you do a charged heavy attack when there aren't enemies close by because he pulls the axe behind him like like to start charging up the attack and he actually like looks back at the axe in his hands and like his arms are physically shaking with anger and like the controller vibrates to sort of emulate that to some extent and like you see that aggression from the old games that would have normally been you know the entire battle in like that one move and it feels really cool every single time like i specifically don't do that that often not because it's ineffective mm -hmm. but because it feels important like it feels like it is him reaching back into the character he was, you know, a lifetime ago. And there are very few games that can capture that kind of magic in their mechanics. <laughs> I think the most impressive thing that God of War did was take Kratos and make him a character that I care about. Because For sure. I, For sure. I don't like Kratos in the old games. <laughs> well, you weren't meant to. Yeah, you're, you're not supposed to. But, like, you don't want to play as this character. Like, he's just not... 
nice to anyone. He's a bad guy. Yeah, you run into a few different characters throughout the game, and there are a few that you are nicer to towards the end, but throughout the entire game, he's just mean to everyone. No, you don't understand. I'm saying that the Kratos in this game is a nice person that I like compared to the Kratos from the other games. There's not a scene in this game where Kratos uses like an innocent bystander to clog a switch up. Like he straight up throws a woman into a switch to hold a door open for him. And like she dies like, and she didn't have anything to do with it. Just like a random woman that was trying to flee the fight. And he uses her basically as a prop. Like, this Kratos is clearly annoyed by, like, there are two recurring characters, these dwarves that upgrade your gear. And, like, every time Kratos encounters them, he is clearly annoyed to be dealing with them. But the Kratos from any of the previous games would have literally murdered them in the first scene if they behaved the way they did to him then. (laughs) Like, this is such an evolution of the character, it's wild. And this is still not a super likable character by any stretch. It's just a huge evolution. He's not likable, but he's a character that I care about, I guess. Right. Yeah. He's a character I respect. Because, like, his primary arc is that he's trying to be a better person than he was. And at the end of the day, that's really all any of us can do. Amen, sister. Now, before I pass it over to Jason, uh, I do have to mention the most important uh, thing about God of War 2018. He has a beard now. It's true. So, Jason, what's your uh, what is your final pick for this two-parter episode? My final pick is I don't know how much I've really talked about it on the podcast. Probably not as much as Disco Elysium, but my favorite game of all time is Fallout New Vegas. I think that it's the RPG that really nails this. The world feels real. It feels like you're a character living in the world and that your actions affect the world. And it feels like you can be any kind of person that you want to be. And you can work with any kind of faction that you want. I think it's the game that most captures like freedom of choice, which is something that I really look for in Western RPGs. Like... I want a game where it feels like every time I play it, I'm playing as a different character and that I get to completely come up with this character and like who they are as a person and what they want and how they're going to interact with people in the world. And it feels like every choice you make has some effect on the world that I just love. Fallout New Vegas is one of those games that I come back to every single year for another playthrough. And every single time, I find something new in the game that I love. Now, out of all of my friends that I talk to about video games, this is probably the only one that I know multiple, like like three or four even, that would say it's their favorite game of all time. So, like, why do you think this is such a popular answer for favorite game? Or why do you think this is the one that so many people keep coming back to? Do you think it's just the variety or do you think there's something else there? I think a big part of it is just how realized the characters are in the game. 
and how everything interacts with each other. It feels like, you know, not only does do you, not only do you get to define who your character is and what you want and the ways that you're going to interact with the world, it feels like everyone you meet in the game has a place in the world and is like intentionally placed there. It's not I mean, I guess I, I kind of oversold how much the world really changes as a result of your actions, but everyone has something to say about your actions. And I think that's is, a really big part of it, of just making yeah. it feel... Even today, so many games just have, like, one or two lines that NPCs will repeat based on any given situation, where I feel like all the Fallout games have done such a good job about every NPC feeling relevant to what is most important to them, not just a you know recycled line of like, welcome to this town, or get off my lawn, or sure is hard living in the wasteland. Like It's always something very pertinent to what is mm-hmm. most important to their town and their community and the world at large at that time. Yeah. I mean, like, characters without names... You know, generally will just throw the same things at you. But any character that has a name has a personality and relationships with all of the people around them that make it to where it feels like a real world. (laughs) And I don't, I can't think of really any other games that quite nailed that so much as Fall New Vegas. On top of that, every quest in the game feels interesting. And, like, important in some way. Whether it's important for just kind of, like, satisfying your curiosity. Or including decisions that you have to think about. Uh, It's a game that's not scared to kind of play around with, you know, where the line between black and white is, you know? For sure. For sure. Because I, for the most part, quest lines don't have, like a right answer you know like there's there's one quest line in particular where it doesn't really matter too too much in the grand scheme of things but it's just there's a lot of quest lines that make you have to think about what you actually think is best i think part of that is like you need it's a game that's best if you approach it earnestly but like there's a quest where you have to decide whether you're going to fix a water pump, essentially, uh, for the sharecroppers outside of New Vegas, who, you know, if they don't get this water, first off, New Vegas is going to be kind of screwed over because there won't be enough food to go around. And second off, like, these people are going to need to move and find new jobs or at the very least new land. But when you're going to do that, you find out that there's also a vault, and that vault has a, a family inside of it. And you have to decide if you're going to activate that water pump, which is going to kill the family, or if you're going to risk it. Because you know that the family is in that vault, but you don't actually know if they're still alive, right? <laughs> so then you really have to weigh it in your head whether it's more important to help the people that you know are alive and condemn people that you don't necessarily know if they're actually alive. 
And I didn't do really well explaining that quest, but it's it's one that really sticks out any time that I play the game. It doesn't have a huge effect on the world if you don't decide to save them. If you do, then like all the people around will start growing crops and stuff, and they'll be more friendly towards you. But it's a quest that makes you think. And then on top of that, there's all the vaults throughout the game. Um, I think there are like seven or eight, and every single one of them is super interesting and unique based on like what experiment was going on in that vault. Is this the one that has the one that just like has a tiger in it? There is a vault in this one where they essentially just they have to decide every year (laughs) who in the vault they're going to kill. And the whole vault votes together on who that person is going to be. I'm going to spoil this quest line. So, I mean, I guess just like skip skip forward a minute if you don't want the spoilers for it. But when you get to the vault, you're at the aftermark, the uh, the aftermath of everything that's gone on. And all you find are five dead bodies and a pistol in the main lobby of the vault. And if you listen to the log that they had together, uh, they found out at the very end, it was just these five people. So everyone else out of like a thousand people in the vault had either been sacrificed or died in like a civil war that broke out. Uh, when the five of them decide not to sacrifice anyone as like kind of just being like, a, I guess it's like a suicide pact together. Um, oh, a congratulations message goes off. And, you know, everyone in the vault, there's like 900 dead people all around them. <laughs> And the congratulation, congratulatory message just goes off, and it's like, congratulations, you solved the test. Now you guys can go free. Uh, and that kills them, basically. Like, they're just like, oh, we're all terrible people. Then they kill themselves, which is a little bit dark, a little bit too dark at the end there. But it's just really interesting. And I've, I haven't seen another game that I think really hits on all of those different points and can make you feel all these different emotions and really bring an emotional weight to all the decisions you make in the game, quite like Fallout New Vegas does. Also, there's Cowboys. There's Big Iron. It, it's one of those games where I have so much respect for what it does. It's just something about it's intimidating in a way that I have a hard time defining. Because everyone I know that has played it has like absolutely loved it and gotten super invested and i'm always just like well do i have time to get into a game like that right now and i keep putting it off and keep putting it off it's it's a tough one to to sort of grapple with yeah i get that you don't have to play it like all in one sitting i would say i mean it's definitely a game that you can kind of split up (laughs) over quite a quite a wide amount of time uh, for me, it just constantly pulls me back in. And I want to make new characters and explore, like, what would happen if I made a different decision here? How will that affect how the people in the world care about me? And then there's a lot of interesting things, like the Brotherhood of Steel's in the game, but almost every faction wants you to kill them. But if you try hard enough and you talk to all the right people... And you help to put all the right you help to put all the right pieces in place, then maybe you'll be able to find a peaceful solution instead of having to kill them. And I, I think that that's kind of neat, of just having like an entire faction, a joinable faction, no less, that at the end of the day, 
you either you have to kill unless you <laughs> take vital care to put to make sure that you're not gonna have to kill them because you might do a quest line for one faction that completely screws over the Brotherhood of Steel and means that you're gonna have to kill them no matter what like there's not gonna be a peaceful solution possible it, it's a world that has a very firmly established lore that's really interesting and you can dive into it as much or as little as you want to it feels like you're rewarded for knowing more about the world whereas i feel like in a lot of games it has optional things that you can read about and learn about but they don't come up very often you know i think that's about it for fallout new vegas jordan uh, why don't you tell us about your number one game for this list? Yeah, so game I want to talk about is, it's a bit older. Um, it's been approximately 17 years since this one first hit the shelves. Um, however, don't worry, you can play it on every console ever made because it's been remade a hundred times. Uh, I am talking about Kingdom Hearts 2. So if you're unfamiliar with the Kingdom Hearts series... The entire, like, the elevator pitch for this is what if Final Fantasy characters met Disney characters? And as conceptually weird as that is, it only gets weirder from there. Now, Kingdom Hearts 1, you know, it was a game that I really, really appreciated, but never, there was always something missing from it for me. Because I, it was one of my first exposures to a game that was mechanically complex. It had an overarching narrative that was interesting and thorough and had a lot of character development involved. There was, there was a lot on display that was very, very cool, but it never quite, it never quite hit the spot. Whereas Kingdom Hearts 2 ups the severity of the story. It gives us so much more character development it introduces a flow to the combat system that is still unmatched to this day. I'm not saying it's like the best combat, but it grows in such a way that I, I love and I've, I've not seen in many other places. And it's just the complete package of what I want from a video game, period. Tells a cool and interesting story, lets you, you know, go to cool places and see cool things and just let you fight big monsters on the way like there is a charm to kingdom hearts 2 that is incredibly hard to put into words mm -hmm. and i think that a lot of people are sort of turned off to the kingdom hearts series because they hear about how much of a convoluted mess the story is and i think that there is some truth to that but at the same time if you're like me and you were playing these games as they released, like as you were growing up, there's really not a lot of other series that hit the same highs that Kingdom Hearts does. There is this core idea of light versus darkness. It's very tired, honestly. But seeing the way that all of these different characters that are so different from one another interact with that battle of light and dark and how they grow and the sacrifices they make i just there was there was a level of investment in these characters that i had not felt in any game up to this point and i have very rarely felt since 
and I still have so much love for the Kingdom Hearts series, even if I think they have dropped the ball many times since Kingdom Hearts 2. And I, w- I can only really think of two examples where I would say they dropped the ball. I mean, like, I think that the Kingdom Hearts series is overall pretty good if you ignore Recoded and you can forgive 3 for its missteps. <laughs> I, I think that Kingdom Hearts' biggest problem isn't even really that any individual games are that bad. It's that they started to tie major narrative points to, like, a mobile game and a movie that was only packaged with a re-release of another game and a weird, like, uh, tech demo, basically, <laughs> that ended up launching, like, three years before the sequel that was supposed to be, like, you know paving the way to and it's there is a lot of weirdness to kingdom hearts that will turn a lot of people off to it instantly and i'm not going to pretend that everybody should give it enough time to get over those things because i'm not sure that it's going to deserve it for everybody but i think for me as someone that was really fascinated with final fantasy but not quite on the level to be playing them because i was only i was only like six when Kingdom Hearts 1 came out, it was only 9 when Kingdom Hearts 2 came out. So, like, Final Fantasy was still out of my grasp, but I really loved a lot of what I saw with characters like Cloud and Leon. And having a game that let me engage with cool stuff like that, but was also sort of at home in these Disney worlds where you're, you know, hanging out with, you know, Mulan and Aladdin and Jack Skellington and... Stuff like that being mixed together in such a way is just so cool. And I think that it was cool to begin with, and then Kingdom Hearts 2 rolls around and improves on literally every aspect of Kingdom Hearts 1, other than maybe some specific level design stuff. Yeah. But like largely an improvement in almost every way. Just This was like the perfect sequel in my mind. Very few games have even come close to what Kingdom Hearts 2 did in terms of improving upon its predecessor. I Honestly, my only real complaint with Kingdom Hearts 2 is that I wish that... I wish it could happen again. Like, I wish it could get sort of like what the Last of Us treatment is getting, where it is being revitalized on that scale. Mm -hmm. Because I think that there are certain aspects that haven't aged the best, but were still exceptional in their time. You guys talked about how good the combat was in God of War. And I'm thinking Kingdom Hearts 2 is probably some of the best combat I've ever played in the game. I absolutely adore the combat in Kingdom Hearts 2. It's a little floaty, I guess might be the right word. But it's just so much fun and so chaotic. Right. But then if you're playing on like harder difficulties and fighting like secret bosses and stuff like that. Like, there's still so much complexity that can be brought into it that makes it interesting. It does some, sure. suffer a little bit from two-button syndrome, but, I mean, not as bad right. as something like... I mean, we talked about Batman Arkham Asylum a little bit earlier. <laughs> kind of one of the originators of two-button syndrome. Or at least, like, they were trying to create something interesting, simple, but complex, but it is very much limited to just a couple of button presses. Kingdom Hearts 2 is the same way, but there's still so much variety and stuff you can do with it, and it's so fun and so flashy. I think one of the best parts about Kingdom Hearts 2 
is that you start off, you know, you have some cool powers and stuff, but you have like a basic three attack combo. You have a few spells. Like it's very, very basic in one sense. But then you start to unlock these abilities like you get sliding dash, which means you can basically automatically move towards certain enemies. I don't think it's sliding dash in Kingdom Hearts 2. I think that's one. But but like there's basically a move that makes your attacks, you know, kind of magnetized towards enemies. And then you get one that lets you knock enemies up into the air. And then you get one that, you know, if you're locked onto an enemy above you, then instead of just, you know, swinging up at them, you do like a spin attack that, you know, hits them in an area and then once they're in the air, you can get a move that like lets you do this crazy spiral thing that hits them and pulls other enemies in. And you can get a finisher that turns it into like a tornado that then sends everything you pulled in flying back out. And all of that just started with like this basic three-hit combo, and you just tacked on you know two or three abilities you got from leveling up. And now, even just pressing X a bunch of times is a totally different experience than it is at the beginning of the game. You know, like you said, it has the two-button syndrome thing. But you can also change what those two buttons do so much. Like, the way you're playing this game in the end will, without a doubt, be totally different than what you were playing at the beginning. No matter how you're focusing your skills or what abilities you're prioritizing. Like, it evolves in such a cool way. Feel powerful at the end. Yeah. It's also just, like, stylized enough with it. Well, I mean, like... Kingdom Hearts 2 was definitely attempting to go for a slightly more realistic style than Kingdom Hearts 1, but it holds up so well. I think Kingdom Hearts 2 looks so good. There is a little bit of an issue with, you know, a lot of areas are fairly empty, and NPCs are pretty lifeless, but honestly, they haven't really fixed that all that much in Kingdom Hearts 3 either. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for sure. But, like, everything looks good and recognizable, and there are a lot of areas that are super interesting looking. For sure. My only real issue, and it's something you, you touched on a little bit earlier, is with like the level design is not quite as interesting as Kingdom Hearts 1. There's a lot of uh, a lot of the levels in the game just kind of feel like you're going from arena to arena, essentially. Just a big right. square room with a whole bunch of enemies in it to another big square room with a bunch of enemies. Uh, and sometimes in the middle, there's a hallway with a bunch of enemies. <laughs> yeah. I think that Kingdom Hearts 1's level design was a little too much like a maze sometimes, and your intentions weren't always clear. But I think they overstepped in trying to fix that going into 2, where they made it a little too linear and a little too just moving between fight to fight. Um, I mean, it gets, I think it actually gets better once you get through the initial story which is only about half the journey in this game in my opinion there's still so much to do after and i think it's uh i think it only gets better the further you get in the more time you put in especially once you're focusing on like you talked about there's like a bunch of secret bosses and the re-release version which is what you can play now on ps4 and xbox one and pc and all that um that added so many extra fights and like an entire extra world almost just with Mm -hmm. you know one giant cave full of all sorts of crazy stuff to find and do and most Um, importantly kingdom hearts 2 trains you to be a functioning member of society with some of the stuff that it added in the final mix version 
because there are, throughout the levels, there are collectibles that you have to find, and once you find them, you have to put together a jigsaw puzzle. <laughs> yeah. We're, it's all coming full circle. We're saving the jigsaw puzzle industry. Kingdom Hearts 2 knew what it was doing. <laughs> Kingdom Hearts 2 put out the hit. Yeah, I, I really adore this game. It's not for everyone. Like, you know, a, a good comparison, I think, would be to God of War. You know, a couple years ago, IGN did a poll of, like, across all their social media that was like, what is the best game of all time? And God of War won. And at first, I was just like, I mean, it's great, but, like, I don't know that it's, like, the best game of all time level. But then I was really thinking about it. It's a great game, and almost every gamer would agree. Kingdom Hearts 2, it's only, it has an audience, and it's not as big and broad of an audience. But, like... I I personally just absolutely adore it. I, I think that there are very few games that I think have the level of nostalgia that I have for this game, but also just are good games in their own right. Like, nostalgia does not carry me through this game. It is a very fun game in its own right, even 17 years later. Yeah. I mean, the biggest attraction I always hear about Kingdom Hearts 2 is just how insane and complex the narrative is. What do you, what do you think of, about that? I think it's fair on some points because even by Kingdom Hearts 2, you already have a lot you have to understand. These are not standalone games. And at the time, the bridge between Kingdom Hearts 1 and 2 was a Game Boy Advance game, which is also excellent in its own right. But I totally get people that didn't have the patience to go through all of that just to learn the story. I do think if you keep up with the story, it's worth it. I think Kingdom Hearts 3 was the first game that actually dropped the ball narratively. Mm-hmm. I think each addition to the Kingdom Hearts series has expanded upon the lore and the characters and the world in interesting and, and worthwhile ways. Even spinoffs like Recoded still had some really cool ideas narratively. And I think 2 does it exceptionally well because you know, you're fighting this big mysterious organization and you know, you're taking down members one by one. But if you've played Chain of Memories... You know, and you, especially if you've played both stories in Chain of Memories, you know you've already fought like six other of these guys already. Like you've already made a significant dent in this organization, and that really pays off in a really cool way as you're seeing it unfold in two. And there's a lot of mystery to it that I think is is really interesting. Um, that also reminds me, I have seen a few times where people have posted on social media and stuff and been like. Here's how you can play the Kingdom Hearts games in chronological order. Because they were released in a weird way. Uh, Do not play them in chronological order. That makes absolutely no sense. Because even like Birth by Sleep, which takes place first, still assumes you know certain like plot twists and things from Kingdom Hearts 2 that will not hit the same if you learn them in a prequel that takes place 15 years earlier. Like, play every game in release order. I can't (laughs) think of any game series where you should play it in chronological order unless that is the release order right like release order should always be the order that you you watch movies in you play games in you read books in because i'm sure chronological order you know you're like oh logically it would make most sense for me to meet a character the first time they're introduced or something like that but that doesn't make any sense if you think about the fact that when the books were published, you're expected to already know who this character is. 
by the right. time that they are quote unquote first introduced in yeah. a later prequel. <laughs> you know, yeah. like meeting Sora and Riku as like toddlers means nothing in Birth by Sleep if you haven't already played Kingdom Hearts one and two. <laughs> hey, to be like, fair, it means nothing if you have played Kingdom Hearts one and two. I mean that's fair, yeah. But I think that scene's kind of dumb, and it it also contradicts Kingdom Hearts one, anyways. Yeah, I'm, there are there are definitely some significant plot holes and some inconsistencies in the series that are definitely frustrating, but never so much that it totally sunk it for me until Kingdom Hearts three. I think something important that people should realize about Kingdom Hearts is like, you know, everyone always talks about how ridiculous it is and like how it takes itself too seriously for how insane it is. And it's just like the people playing the game, kingdom hearts fans know that it's ridiculous and we're laughing at it. Like nobody sees the scene of, uh, of King Mickey walking into room being like, gee fellas, did somebody mention the door to darkness? And is just like, this is a serious moment that I'm, I'm <laughs> taking very seriously. <laughs> yeah. It is, we know what this game is, we, and we still love it. Yeah, we know it's ridiculous that Mickey Mouse is wearing a dark cloak and hiding around in the shadows. And in a sense, we love it because of those things, not in spite of them, but not because we actually take things like that seriously. Those are fun and dumb distractions from the other parts of the story that we're actually invested in. But regardless, like I said, this game definitely has an audience. I think everyone should give Kingdom Hearts 1 a shot. And if it's even bearable, I think you should stick it out. Because I wouldn't play Kingdom Hearts 2 without playing at least one first, preferably one and Chain of Memories. But I think that you will get so, so much out of it if you give this series the time it asked for. I think part of the advantage that we had is just playing it with the time. Yeah. I mean, like I think it probably seems even more insane if you, if you're playing them like in the collection all around the same time. Right. I think that a lot of important context and stuff with kingdom hearts is honestly given by trying to come up with like theories for why things are the way they are. (laughs) Right. Like, I think that my understanding of kingdom hearts lore is, a lot deeper just because of the time that I've spent thinking like what the heck was going on with this <laughs> right. and then trying to like figure it out without having a later game and then the later game will almost always contradict what I was thinking it was it was <laughs> but for sure I've still put a lot of time like into thinking about it <laughs> yeah for example there is a letter that is delivered in Kingdom Hearts 2 but you don't find out what that letter says until Kingdom Hearts Dream Drop Distance, which released seven years later. We spent a lot of time speculating about what that letter said. It was not anything you know we were anticipating or would have guessed at all. I mean, this game definitely subverts expectations a lot. And for the most part, in a good way. But there was definitely a lot of appeal... There was a lot of similar appeal with the Kingdom Hearts games as they were released as there is with the Marvel movies today. Or, well, probably even more with the Marvel movies in the Thanos saga, the Infinity Saga, where 
half the fun was speculating about what's coming next. It wasn't just experiencing it. It was talking to people that were also invested in it about what you wanted, what you expected, and seeing what panned out. And unfortunately, it's really hard to recapture that today, considering these games are all out now and things are clearly different going forward for the Kingdom Hearts franchise. But that's definitely a part of the draw, or was a part of the draw originally. Incredible games. I tried to get into it probably about a year and a half ago. And I played through like 15 hours of Kingdom Hearts 1. But honestly, my biggest problem with the game is the Disney stuff. I I didn't grow up with like any of the Disney stuff in the Kingdom Hearts game. So I don't, I don't have that attachment to it that I feel like was a big draw for a lot of the audience when the game came out. I think the big difference is just that I had a I had a DVD player and a VHS player. We watched the Disney movies as they came out. And I watched them a lot. And yeah. for me, a lot of them I haven't seen or the ones I have seen, I just don't really care about. You know what? Give me a Mulan world and an Emperor's New Groove world and I'm in. Well, Kingdom Hearts 2 has one of those. We're all pushing for an Emperor's yeah. New Groove world, though. <laughs> Every day, we get further away from an Emperor's New Groove movie. Yeah. I mean, a, a world in Kingdom Hearts. I'm still really excited about what Kingdom Hearts 4 has to offer, but I'll admit that Kingdom Hearts 3 kind of soured a lot of the, the hype for what's to come, because it was meant to be the conclusion to a lot of stuff that was set up in 2, and there was clearly a tremendous rush to get a finished product out the door. And that was that ended in a culmination of kicking some of the plot lines down the road in a way that didn't make sense and then wrapping some others up in a very, very quick package without an explanation. One character is literally resurrected, no explanation of how or why. And it's not addressed at all until a DLC. <laughs> so, you know, that's the kind of thing you get. They cut all of the Final Fantasy characters from the whole game. Like, right. that's supposed to be half the draw. Yeah. And we've also learned since that a lot of the weirdness with some of the Disney aspects were also poor management or, well, management oversight and the things they shouldn't have had oversight into necessarily. Like, for example, the Frozen World is certainly the low point of Kingdom Hearts 3, like, without question. And there was a much better version in the game at one time where Elsa was the main villain, but Disney just refused to let that be the case. Like, they just were not about to let that happen. And what we got instead was, like, a super bland, linear trap. (laughs) You end up spending most of the game going up and down the same, or most of the level going up and down the same mountain, which is a big part of the movie, of course. But And then just, like, going to a castle that wasn't even actually in the movie. So, like, you know. That was clearly a lot of bad sacrifices made. All we're saying is the Kingdom Hearts games were better under Michael Eisner. Bring him back. Bring <laughs> him back. Yeah, that was the that was the deciding factor. Well, I think that we're finally coming to the end of our favorite games of all time discussion. We appreciate you sticking it out with us and hearing what we have to say. And we hope that you've learned a little bit about us and what we look for in games and that that can help you sort of establish who we are as gamers and reviewers and what to expect when you see us on twitch and stuff so you know 
we, we really want your feedback. If you tell us what your favorite games of all time are, we will be happy to discuss them in future episodes. And we would love to come back to more of this down the road at some point. So, so definitely let us know. But to close, the best game of all time is um, Marvel Kicksaw Puzzles for Adults. Buy them, <laughs> buy them wherever Kicksaw Puzzles are sold. Yep. Uh, and they have the Disney license. Yep. Now that we've done 50 episodes on video games, we're transitioning to a Jigsaw Puzzle podcast. Yeah, and to give you a little bit of a taste for that. Our first puzzle that we're going to put together to end this episode is 500 pieces. And we're just going to do it uh, while we're live on mic. (laughs) There might be several minutes with no speaking whatsoever, so just deal with us on that. I'm working on assembling the outer frame. Jackson, do you have a red corner piece where at the top right it turns a little bit blue? I have a red corner piece. Where at the top right, it turns a little bit navy. Couldn't be the same. (laughs) Anyways, it's time to pull the plug. Jackson, what else have you been into? I had two games that I would talk about. Those being Roller Drome and Cult of the Lamb. But I have not put much time into those since I got them. Because... You you could probably guess Destiny Two. The uh the current season of Destiny Two is about to end. Uh, two days from the recording of this episode, and I did not hit the max uh season pass level as soon and as early into the season as I usually do. So I have spent the last two days doing a season's worth of quest twice. I managed to get, uh, I think, 30 season pass levels within two days. And now I want to keep playing, but I don't have anything to do. <laughs> so Play a better game. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. Why would I play something I've never played before when I can just play the same game over and over again? Delete a character and start a new one. <laughs> New season's about to start in two days, and I've got myself prepped for it. And they're doing a big showcase reveal of what'll most likely be the next DLC. Really excited to see what all that is, and more importantly, they're doing a collab with Fortnite. (laughs) And I don't mean they're adding Destiny skins to Fortnite, they're adding Fortnite skins to Destiny. Has that been confirmed yet? It has not been officially confirmed, but it I can't is. I believe Jackson is spreading possible misinformation on our podcast. It is. We're gonna have to put a tag on this one. <laughs> it has been leaked. Um, it has been leaked by some of like the like major leakers in the Destiny community, which I don't really condone leaking that much. But at this point, it's been hard to avoid. It's everywhere. And Jackson's pro league, <laughs> and the uh, the CCO of um, Epic Games is apparently a big Destiny fan, and has been kind of hinting at the collab recently. So 
it's it it's not confirmed to be coming, but I'm assuming Tuesday they're going to confirm that they're adding uh, Fortnite to Destiny, which, as far as we know, is just three uh, different ornament sets. But I'm hoping they add the default dances and emote to Destiny. <laughs> now nah, I want them to add a battle royale mode. That would be insufferable. Yeah, that would be awful. <laughs> that would not work. You got to pick up all your guns on the map. You don't get to use your yep. loadout or your skills. Oof. But yeah. New season of Destiny about to start. Probably getting Fortnite in the game. So looking looking forward to doing the default dance whenever I get a very easy kill in Crucible. <laughs> but anyways. I hope we also get Destiny in Fortnite. Which I would imagine we will in some capacity as well. But yeah, I'm assuming that. But interesting enough, that has not been leaked. So I don't know yet. I think the the more important thing. I think this is the first time there's ever been a Fortnite collab with Fortnite in other games. I cannot think of another time they've done that. Maybe in Rocket League? But I don't know. That sounds right, but who knows? But anyways. I'm not about to research that in the slightest. Me either, because I don't care that much. But anyways, Jason, what have you been into? Well, over the past three or four weeks, I've been playing through the Arkham games again. But I didn't play through Arkham Asylum this this most recent time because I I just played that several months ago. So I decided to pick up from Arkham City. And my original plan was to get the Platinum Trophy in it. But then I found out that Arkham City has a trophy where you have to visit Calendar Man um, 12 times throughout the year. <laughs> like throughout the, the real life year. And you have to be... You have to visit him on like specific days. Um... So that kind of that kind of slowed down my trophy hunting plans. I mean, I guess I could just disconnect my PlayStation from the internet and do it that way, but it feels dishonest. I want to get it legit. So I decided to move on to Arkham Knight instead. And honestly, Arkham Knight is an absolutely gorgeous game for it to be from 2015. Like, that's the thing that I can't stop thinking about when I'm playing it, is that I've never seen a game that looks so good and so like atmospheric especially one that is now going on seven years old it does not feel like it is seven years old it, that's just that's still there are not many games that like it's hard for me to think about how old they are but arkham knight is definitely one of them i really do like a lot about arkham knight i mean i do have complaints like way too much batmobile obviously but if it's something that you're doing in Arkham Knight that you previously did, this is the best way I can think to describe it. If it's something in Arkham Knight that you also did in Arkham City, it feels a million times better. <laughs> like, gliding around the city feels better. Exploring is more interesting. Finding the Riddler trophies so far has been more enjoyable than for Arkham City. And then, especially like the Predator challenges... The ones where you're like sneaking around and trying to take out the enemies without being detected are so good in Arkham Knight. I, I think that the addition of those uh, those uh, fear takedowns or whatever they're called, where you can take down like multiple guys in quick succession, is really cool and adds like a whole new layer to the game. But more importantly than that, it just feels like all of the controls are zeroed in perfectly. And 
there's not moments where I'm like punching the air like I ran into with Arkham City. It just feels so good. Unfortunately, the Batmobile is so important in this game. It's all over the place. And like, I recognize that Batman uses the Batmobile a lot in the comics, but I think focusing on tank combat like this was a major misstep, which everyone that's ever talked about this game has said the same thing. It's not that I dislike the Batmobile combat. There's just too much of it. Like, There's too much of it, but then it doesn't feel very Batman. Like, when's, can you think of any no, time yeah, that Batman it has... It is not a very Batman thing, that I will admit. Exactly. I, I still find it fun. My, it, it, it's, there's too much of it, and they use it at very, like, important times where you shouldn't be. Like, there's an important fight with the Arkham Knight in the Batmobile, like, twice. <laughs> they just reuse the Arkham Knight, like, tank fight for Deathstroke. <laughs> That's probably my biggest problem with the game, just because of how good the Deathstroke fight was in Origins, and then in this it's like, okay, tank. Yeah, I remember when I originally played this game, and after you beat the game and the Arkham Knight's defeated, uh, Deathstroke replaces him for leading the primary enemies that are just around the map. And I was so excited after having played at least a little bit of Arkham Origins and having done the fight against Deathstroke, which is like, I mean, at the end of the day, it's still the standard Arkham combat, but it just felt so cool and looked so cool and was... At least from my experience, it's one of my favorite combat, <laughs> like standard combat boss fights in any of the Arkham games. And then in Arkham Knight, you don't even have a hand-to-hand -hand fight with him at all, which is insane. Talk about a major misstep. I mean, like, other than those things, other than the Batmobile, I do think that this game does really nail making you feel like Batman. <sighs> And we just lost all credibility. But, I, I mean, like, that's the ultimate goal of these Arkham games. And I think Arkham City nailed it in a lot of ways. But, like I said, everything that's in Arkham City is also in Arkham Knight and is done, or it's at least improved upon in some way. Ar Arkham Knight really could have been the best Batman game by, like, a huge margin if it wasn't for all of the Batmobile. But... Even as it is, it's still a really fun game, and I'm really having a good time with it. And it doesn't have a stupid trophy that requires me to play it, like, once in January, twice in February. <laughs> so I, I'm going to try to get the Platinum on this one. That's my goal for the next couple weeks. Although next week, we finally have a new game coming out to talk about, so that's exciting. New games are back, it's been baby. been so long since I kept up with new games coming out that I don't even know what game you're talking about. We'll get to it in a minute. Well, I'm going to poach one of Jackson's games here. Uh, I also have started into Roller Drum and Cult of the Lamb. I think I've actually played more of both than he has. But uh, I'm going to start with Cult of the Lamb, which is an oddity. Because it's two very different games in one, in a, in a sense. Uh, it is a roguelike hack and slash something something like a mix of Binding of Isaac and Hades in a way. But aside from that part of the gameplay, there is also like a city management type sim also happening, all of Animal Crossing type stuff. 
And both of those aspects of the game are sort of enveloped by one of the weirdest and creepiest settings I've ever seen in a game. This is a simulator where you are building a cult. You are playing as a sacrificial lamb that has been resurrected specifically by these like eldritch gods to start a cult. And it's this like very cutesy kind of funny cartoonish aesthetic but also has this layer of just abysmal stuff that you were actively doing (laughs) uh, sprinkled on top of it and it's it's weird but at the same time I'm really digging it so far I think that the combat's a little on the light side for my taste but I think that the like cult building and management side of the game is actually really cool because you have a lot of ways you can build it up and there are ways you can you know the way you get the resources and stuff from combat but you can also build buildings that you know you can then send your followers to go work in and as you get more followers you can have them like worship you more which gets which is how you improve your abilities in combat and there are systems where you have people like pray to an idol and you know the more people you have praying to it the faster you can unlock like schematics for your church and the way you get those followers is by going out on what they call crusades to make it even worse um and capturing and you know basically bringing in anyone that's not actively trying to fight you to be part of your cult and There is definitely, like, a weird, dark, uncomfortable side to this game. But I think it's actually really cool as, like, a critique of organized religion universally. That's actually kind of smart. And I think that there is a lot to like here, even if it has some missteps and it has maybe a little too dark of a tone sometimes. They try a little too hard for that shock value element it has like a i heard someone on another podcast describe it as being like happy tree friends in a way and like i think that tracks and also there's a reason that happy tree friends isn't a thing in 2022 (laughs) so you know if you can get past that i think it's actually a really smart game with a lot of cool stuff on display but it's not going to be for everyone to say the least (laughs) yeah Um, i've been meaning to pick it up because I've heard a lot of people say it's like one of their favorite games of the year. And uh, just a reminder that Elden Ring came out this year. So Yeah. Yep. It's uh, it, it's pretty cool. So I'm very excited to talk about Rollerdrome at a later date. But I've only played about a third of it. And I want to finish it first. But yeah. Cult of the Lamb. That's, that's my indie pick of the week. <laughs> my indie pick um, was Destiny. <laughs> yeah. So... Next week, as we've already mentioned, we are getting our first new game in what feels like an eternity, Saints Row. So, we will be streaming it this coming weekend, and then we'll have our podcast episode the week after. So, definitely check that out. If you're playing the game, if you're liking it, if you're disliking it, anything in between, let us know. We would be happy to get your reviews or your thoughts onto the podcast in some capacity. But 
that just about does it for another episode of the Totally Biased Media Podcast. If you would like to reach out to us, there are several ways you can do that. On Twitter, at TBMCast. On Instagram, at Totally Biased Media. Our email is totallybiasedmedia at gmail.com. Send us your reviews, your suggestions, your feedback on the show. Literally anything you want to tell us, we're happy to engage. and We will try and work it into what we do in any way that we reasonably can. If we stream on Twitch at least every other week, first off will be our Saints Row stream this coming weekend. That is twitch.tv slash totallybiasedmedia. We would also love to hear suggestions on what you want us to stream because we are still trying to up our number of streams and we do occasionally work in a sporadic one outside of that every other week schedule. So if there's anything specific you want to see streamed, definitely let us know. So for the Totally Biased Media Podcast, I'm Jordan Walkup. I'm Jason Simmons. And I'm Jackson Walkup. You just felt the bias. Thank you, everybody. Goodbye.